it's because there's a lot of bias in research. Sure. A lot of scientists who do research and and probably worst of all non-scientists who do research don't understand their own biases and they do tend to make small decisions during the design and the conduct of a study which add up yeah. to um, producing the result that they always expected to produce. CPD Health Courses. Try needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face -face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com. Good evening and welcome. My name is Wayne Mahmood from CPD Health Courses and tonight we've got a very special guest on our podcast. We've got a podcast with Professor Ian Harris. Professor Ian Harris is the author of a very important book for us as manual therapists and in fact for all uh, health professionals. The book published by New South Books is called Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo. Now, Ian, congratulations on the book and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I must say I really enjoyed the book, Ian, after I was recommended to read it by a colleague of mine and I thought it'd be great to hear why you wrote the book and gain some valuable insights into uh, your research about surgery, surgeons and surgical procedures, which you cover really well in the book. Uh, a little bit about you, you uh, Ian. Uh, uh, Ian is an orthopaedic surgeon uh, in clinical practice in Sydney, Australia, and was recently named a member, AM, in the General Division of the Order of Australia. This award recognises Ian's work as a clinician, as well as his substantial contribution to orthopaedic education and research. Ian is also an academic, he's a professor of orthopaedic surgery with higher degrees, masters and a PhD in evidence-based medicine and surgery. He directs a research unit that focuses on the outcomes of surgery and has published and presented widely in the field of surgical outcomes. So, the book itself, Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo, which is a great title and provides us with the evidence for surgical procedures that simply don't stack up with respect to their efficacy. My favourite line, though, Ian, in the book is this one. As Voltaire said, the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. Wonderful. My first question to you, Ian, is a bit tongue-in-cheek with respect, uh, if you'll forgive me. Uh, what's wrong with amusing my patients and leaving it to nature? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's a question that is commonly asked. So when faced with evidence that a certain procedure is no better than placebo, often, I should point out, in those studies, both treatments are often associated with improvements in the patients. But when the treatment is no better than placebo, I often get asked, well, what do I care? If, say, two-thirds of the patients are getting better anyway, mm. why don't I just continue doing the treatment? I don't care if it's a placebo effect or a direct effect. Now, I have several problems with that. Uh, the biggest problem I have is that um, probably by and large, patients are not getting better because of your treatment. In other words, the, the placebo effect gets a little bit overplayed. And what we forget is that a lot of people get better anyway, or we have a, a phenomenon called regression to the mean, um, which means that if you'd remeasured the patients after your treatment and never given any treatment, they still would have got better. And the classic example, which I keep coming back to, is the common cold. Mm. Um, any treatment that you give for the common cold works or appears to work, but it doesn't actually work. So the, the first problem I have is that your treatment is probably not effective. It's not that it has a placebo effect. It probably just doesn't do anything. And then this leads to the other problems where you are exposing the patients to a risk of harm and you are incurring a cost. And the fourth problem I have is that by using the placebo, you are tricking the patient or tricking yourself and removing the only barrier between a science-based practice and a faith-based practice or a non-scientific practice. Um, so as soon as you accept 
that we don't care how it works as long as I think, as long as I see people get better afterwards. I don't care if they get better because of what I've done. I don't care if it's a placebo effect. As soon as you do that, then then really you have become a faith healer, uh, you know, or any kind of sort of quack healer. That's what they rely on. Okay, that's a great answer, very comprehensive, and uh, thank you for that as a great start to our podcast. Now, you mentioned placebo and placebo effect, and you do so in uh, the first few chapters. And uh, the, the book is mainly about surgery and, and placebo, but we all know what surgery is, but we probably all think we know what placebo is as well. But you explained ex placebo really well in the book, Ian, and I'd like you to explain placebo and placebo effect because you, you did touch on that just in this in the in the answer before so we can all get a good grip on the essence of what you're talking about in the book yeah the, the concept of the placebo is really fairly well understood and that is it's a an intervention or or a practice that has no direct specific therapeutic effect so it may result, you know, due to the context in which it is given, it may result in effect or, or it may not, but it doesn't have any direct specific effect on the underlying condition. And the classic example is a sugar pill, but we all know you can have saline injections or you can have even sham surgery, um, which has been done more and more. And so the, the concept of a placebo is fairly easy to understand. The concept of the placebo effect is not. Yeah. Because by definition, a placebo has no effect. Yeah. Um, and, and so you have to understand that what we call the placebo effect is not necessarily a direct effect of the placebo that you've done. And it could be, um, you know, the, just the natural history. And the, the classic example is every cure you've ever heard for the common cold. Yeah. They all work. Mm. Uh, everybody gets better after you give those treatments and that's not a placebo effect it's not a direct effect it's it's nothing it's just the fact that you would get better from a cold anyway yeah um, okay. so so we often call the placebo effect um, we we name it when people get better after we treat them but um, I think that the idea of the placebo effect is a little bit overplayed yes Okay, so placebo effect should be probably called something else then because if it's not actually related to the placebo in the first place, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and there has been suggestions from others who have written on the placebo effect to to call it other things and one suggestion has been the meaning response. Okay. Um, that's just a little bit harder to explain, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's what the... Uh, um, you know, what it means to the person to have this done to them because it takes into account not just the injection that you've given or the, the placebo pill, but also the environment in which it is given. Oh, um, okay. The person that's given it, the, the, the cost, the hassle they go through, the okay. other reactions uh, to the injection, the pain that they feel from surgery. Yes. Um, all these other things uh, create a response in the patient. Okay. Um, yeah, it's okay. complicated. Yeah, okay. So I might go back to placebo effect, actually. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's go back to that. So, uh, okay, so you've explained placebo, and we'll get back to that later uh, and placebo effect. But so some of that is about our perception, and um, our perception Here's one that we've got. Our perception of surgeons, people like yourself, as they're at the top of the tree in the medical world, uh, especially your specialists, your uh, our perception of them is determined from a young age, in fact. We know that you have to be smart. You have to work hard to get into a medical school. We know that training is long and challenging, and we know that, you can save, that doctors can save your life. It takes a long time to get to see one for a start. You pay more to get to see a specialist than uh, your GP. They've got a nice room. They've got well-dressed reception staff. Uh, they've got certificates everywhere. I've just read your uh, CV for a start, and that was impressive enough. So by the time I see one, a specialist, could I have already got better, and what would we call that? Yeah, by the time you get to see one. Yeah. Did you say? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Am I already on the road to recovery? <laughs> Probably. No, yeah. not really. I think. Uh, but once but there is this perception, which certainly contributes to any meaning response or placebo effect that surgeons have, is there's a perception. This is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. There's a perception that surgery is effective, that it is literally cut and dried. It's uh, mm. it's it's quite clear. Um, it's not clear. It doesn't doesn't rely on things that you can't see, like X-rays or 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 uh, weird drugs that have weird effects. You've got a, a lump there, and we remove the lump, and then the lump's gone. It's, yeah. It, it's difficult to see surgery as something that might not be effective. Um, and all this talk about um, the ineffectiveness of of a lot of medicine that we use, and you know, drugs and antidepressants and all these sorts of things, but surgery gets off scot-free. It really, um, it, it isn't subject to the same rigors of proof that new drugs are. Mm. If I want to do a new operation, I can just start doing it tomorrow. Yeah. I don't have to get TGA approval or anything like that. Mm. Um, and, and it's because there's, I think, it's this perception that, well, if it didn't work, then surgeons wouldn't do it. Yeah. No, you mentioned that later in the in the in the uh, book as well. And I'm going to ask you about that because this surprised me that if you wanted to do a new operation tomorrow, you could just go ahead and do it. No one would ask you anything. But if you want to do research on a particular surgical procedure, then we'd have to go to ethics and all sorts of other things, and it'd be a roadblock. Uh, but uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get back to that later. I've got another question about that later. But talking about research still. You need a hypothesis to test. You got money. Uh, you have to have money. You have a research team, a supervisor who's attached to a university or a lab, subject, statistician, and time. So, given these minimum requirements, do you think that uh, people like me in allied health as a manual therapist, that I'm talking about physios, osteos, chiros, and so on, um, are, are we at a disadvantage in providing evidence for what we do? Um, because, I mean, the benefits in conducting research to find out if a particular technique or exercise or intervention in my field is not going to make anyone rich. It's not uh, like a drug company. Uh, where, whereas if we're testing a drug, there's a massive amount of investment there that would go into that. So we're at a disadvantage there. Do you, do you think that's true? Um, not necessarily. I think there's really two types of research. There's industry-sponsored research, and certainly the drug companies, um, you know, put a lot of money into into researching the drugs. They have to. It's a requirement for mm. them to get it on the market. Yeah. But there's also investigator-led research, which is a big part of research, and all the research I do is investigator-led. So I know a lot of. Uh, physios who are uh, researchers, uh, surgeons, um, and other um, practitioners who do investigator-led research. Now, that's difficult because you've got to compete with each other for the for the research dollar. Yeah. But there is a fair bit of research money out there, not just from the NH and MRC and ARC, but also from uh, uh, not-for-profit health foundations. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of money out there for research. Sure. And you can do research on a on a reasonable budget. Okay. So right. I think it's I think it's doable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I the until re recently all the research I did was basically unfunded, and it's only been in the last four or five years I've been able to get grant funding for some of my research. Okay, that's encouraging, Ian. Um, all right, staying with uh, research um, and talking about physical therapy, would you say that it would be more difficult to use a placebo uh, in a trial for when we're testing a, a particular technique in physical therapy, for example, given the very nature that physical therapies involve hands-on work? So it's actually you're either going to be doing something or you're not. Uh, so it's uh, difficult to, to set that study up. Yeah, definitely. So um, it, it is. Anything that involves um, the patient having a uh, you know physical thing done to them with them aware of it, because with surgery uh, it's easy because they're asleep, so they don't know. Um, but it, it is. And manual therapies, physical therapy, is very difficult to do shams and placebos. It's been done, but it's been done rarely, uh, and it is difficult to do. Acupuncture as well. Yeah, uh, it's been done. Yeah, there's argument over exactly how you do it. So certainly that that is a definite 
uh, obstacle. I mean, not every study needs to be sham controlled, though. You can still do studies of one treatment versus another, yeah, yeah. Uh, or two different forms of the same treatment without having to have a sham. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's a good point. Yeah, look, I'm aware of one study uh, that uh, was um, dry needling related in Spain where they actually uh, did some needling to a patient before they had a knee arthroplasty. So the patient was actually knocked out anyway or they had an epidural. Uh -huh. um, so that was a yeah. really good study but quite a small one. But that, that, I'm not too sure that would be too many orthopods that would uh, let uh, you do that uh, in this country. But uh, if you're up for it, I'll uh, have to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> okay, so in the book, you say that this, you, you made this uh, comment, I expect it, this, this is the book, I expect the book to help people ask the right questions and become more objective and therefore less human in weighing up the evidence regarding the risks. It's very difficult to be less human, isn't it? I mean, in the very essence of medicine and those interactions between therapists and patients, it's all about human feelings and human engagement between them, isn't it? Yeah. So what I this is something that I do call for. Um, when I say less human, I mean more scientific. Oh. Hello? Yep, I can still hear you. Oh, sorry, I just lost my headset, I think. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, you can hear me? Yeah, I can hear. Yeah, sorry. Um, it, it's not, um, uh, being scientific isn't a natural thing for humans. Mm. Uh, it's normal for humans to jump to conclusions and to see causation where there is only correlation. Um, and so we have to uh, detune ourselves. We, we have to realize um, that we are subject to biases and uh, uh, cognitive biases that, that we need to reset a little bit if we're going to be more scientific. So when I say you need to be less human, I really mean uh, that you need to be more scientific. And it means you need to be objective, you need to be uh, sceptical and critical of claims. Claims need support. Um, and you need to, as I say, ask the right questions. Um, because the question is, an operation, the question shouldn't be, well, have you ever seen this operation work? The question should be, what is the probability of my condition improving with surgery compared to the probability of my condition improving without surgery? These are the sort of objective, logical questions that we should be asking that don't really naturally spring to mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I understand what you're saying. So you're basically not really saying to be less human, obviously. You're just saying to be more scientific, more objective, ask yeah. questions, which is uh, great. Um, so let's dive into a bit of research terminology, which you um, really uh, explain very well in, in the book, and I recommend that uh, just for that purpose alone. So you, you uh, mention an important statistical term related to why people might get better, but uh, not due to the specific effect of a treatment. And we touched on this before, um, that people might just get better anyway. So that's called regression to the mean. Can you tell us how that uh, ex explain this term and its relevance to the, the clinical research studies? Yeah, regression to the mean is an important thing to understand. Um, because it's often not understood and it is a common reason why people think that treatments get better. Yeah. So take any condition that fluctuates. Um, your blood pressure will fluctuate if I measure it now and I measure it in five minutes. I mean, it's never exactly the same. Sure. And if you've got, say, uh, osteoarthritis or you've got a, a sore knee, um, it's going to have good times and bad times. You're going to have six months where it's bad, a month where it's good, a week where it's bad, six months where it's good. It's going to be all over the place. Yeah. Now, if you take a patient or a group of patients who have a fluctuating condition like osteoarthritis of the knee yeah. and you pick them when they are particularly bad, yeah. whatever you do to them, at any time point later, they are more likely to be back to the mean. They're more likely to be back to their average. Yeah. And so you'll take a patient who's got very bad pain, you'll do a procedure to them. At some time after that, their pain won't be so bad because you just happen to catch them at a bad time. Yeah. And then you will attribute that, that success to the treatment that you gave. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that, that's perfect. I understand that completely. I'm sure our listeners are too. So I'm just going to fire some more at you. So confirmation bias, that's another important one you mentioned. The confirmation bias is easy to understand. It's, it's again, our human, non-scientific tendency to um, look for evidence that confirms what we already thought was true. Mm. Um, and so uh, I'm a believer that uh, treatment A works. Yeah. So when I read the literature and I see an article that treatment A works, yeah. Um, whether it be a poor article or not, I tend not to be too critical of it because it supports my belief. Yeah. And when I see an article that says treatment A doesn't work, I'm more dismissive of it and I'll pick holes in it. Yeah. Um, and, and this is confirmation bias. Okay, so it's sort of the, the opposite to seeing is believing. You're actually believing is seeing. Yeah, exactly. It's believing is seeing. Yeah, okay. Um, a human characteristic. Anyway, okay, and this is a, a lovely word, uh, a lovely phrase, cognitive dissonance. What is that? Uh, yeah, dissonance is, is when um, two things don't make sense. So when you, when you have an operation, you've invested um, time, uh, a lot of money, uh, you've had pain, you've taken time off work, um, you've been in hospital for a while. To you, your, your mind tells you, well, I must be better. Yeah. Right? I mean, why would I do all of that yeah. if this treatment wasn't effective? Yeah. And um, you tend not to, so if you're kind of not as good as you think you are, it doesn't, or if you need, it doesn't get better, it doesn't make sense. And you have to find, a way of resolving that cognitive dissonance. Yes. Um, and so you either talk yourself into the fact that your knee is actually better uh, or you blame it on something else. Uh, you know, it doesn't make sense that the procedure doesn't work. So you have to find a way around that um, cognitive um, sort of paradox. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So um, this is a Latin one. And I, I love uh, saying this because it makes you sound really smart, actually. But anyway, uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc. Uh, what does this mean and how is it related to our research and our observations as humans? We're actually a bit prone to this one, aren't we? Yeah, so this is a really big one. This is like the number one. Yeah. So post hoc ergo propter hoc means it follows, therefore it is because of. Yeah. And this is what I've been saying till now. It's... Um, it's one of the biggest biases. <clears throat> it's probably a very human uh, reaction. It probably evolutionarily got us where we are. I yep. mean, if we, an example I give in the book, I think, is if you eat a piece of fruit and you get sick afterwards, that may not have been the piece of fruit that made you sick. Mm. But evolutionarily, you're not going to sit around there and conduct a randomized trial and eat 10 pieces of that fruit and 10 pieces of another fruit to see if you get sick. You're just not going to eat the fruit again. Yeah. Because it made you sick. Yeah. Um, but as as I've explained, a lot of the time, just because somebody gets better, get uh, their common cold gets better after they've had the treatment, yeah, we immediately assume causation, sure. and that's post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is yeah. a, a number one logical fallacy. Sure. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense. So, um, yeah, there's various organizations around the world that uh, look at research like the Cochrane Collaboration, but um, there's another one called the, the, the NICE uh, guidelines, guidelines in the UK, which is National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. And they've actually developed a do not do database of treatments investigations that should be discontinued. And although if you do a search in that database for surgical procedures, you still find hundreds of do not do procedures, but they're not actually procedures if you look closely. They're actually more ways of doing the surgery. Are the NICE guidelines or NICE guidelines trying to avoid tre treading on toes? Is that why they're not doing that? And why they're not saying they're not actually mentioning the procedures themselves? No, I think it's difficult. So um, for a lot of procedures, they can be used for many things. Yeah. And for some things, those procedures may be very effective. And for other things, they're not. And so take hysterectomy, for example. So if you have a, you know, a tumor or, or, or something serious, 
you may benefit greatly from having a hysterectomy. Yeah. Um, the other side is that if you have vague abdominal pain without sort of many signs of anything and you have a hysterectomy uh, just because, it's probably not helpful to you and, and there is evidence that there, some degree of hysterectomy is unnecessary and ineffective. Yeah. But then you can't say you must never do a hysterectomy. No. It, it becomes very difficult to make that a do not do procedure. Sure. Um, and then so you have qualifications for it. This is the argument that we're currently going through with knee arthroscopy. Knee yeah. arthroscopy can be very effective in the right patient. It can be a complete waste of time yeah. in another patient. And working out exactly where you draw that line is difficult. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So just trying to be more accurate, trying to not throw out the baby with the bathwater. They're just trying to be more accurate yeah. and, more, and more helpful yeah. in their advice. Okay. So. Yeah. Now, one of the challenges with research design is accounting for patients getting better anyway, and you've told us that. So how do we know whether an intervention or a treatment really had a specific effect on a person? Now, you say that one way might be having two groups of patients. One group of patients might receive treatment A, and the other, which is matched to the first group, but not receiving treatment A. But that also has a possible design problem as far as I could see. For a start, the two groups might be already randomized. They might be age matched, gender balanced, blinded, ETC, whatever. They're trying to be homogenous and trying to be similar. In fact, as everything's done to try and make them very much the same. But the two groups outside the study, if it's a, a long-term study over a period of time to see if something helps, they can't behave the same exactly outside that study like they go home and they've got different jobs they've got different exercise levels they've got different stresses in their lives and so on so can the study uh, design of a study be com completely allow for these possibilities or uh, uh, confounders I would say definitely so when you divide patients into two groups to do an yeah. experimental study yeah. You try and divide them so that these confounders or these variables are fairly even. But there's all these other variables that you don't know about. There's variables that will come up later. There's other things that you weren't thinking of at the time. And so this is where the randomized control trial is effective because randomization should allow for unknown confounders. It sure. should uh, adjust for all confounders so that, sure, some patients might go home and, and do something differently, but the probability of a patient in one group doing that should be the same as the probability in the other group doing that. Yeah. So as long as the groups are even yes. with respect to those confounders, then it's not a confounder. Yeah. Um, so randomized trials, but the important thing with that is uh, blinding. Yeah. So um, to blind the patient is, is arguably one of the most important things, apart from randomization itself, in a good scientific study um, because patients who know they got the active treatment will behave differently and react differently to patients who um, know that they got the inactive treatment. Sure. Um, so blinding is important and randomization is important and yeah, you can do some very good studies that way. So you've got randomized, double-blind, controlled studies would be your gold standard, would we say that? Uh, completely blinded. Double-blind is a, a term that you, I'm not sure which two people are blinded because these days the person who's giving the treatment should be blinded, the person who's receiving the treatment should yeah. be blinded, the observer who measures the outcome should be blinded as to what group they're in. Yeah. And these days we even blind the statisticians. Okay. So right. that when they're comparing one to group two, they don't know which one's which. Okay. So we're really quadruple blinding, or we might as well just say completely blind, yeah. as you said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Moving on. Uh, tell us about falsifiability and its relevance to science and research. According to uh, your book, you mentioned Karl Popper. It, it's a basic tenet of science that any finding, a statement, or theory must be falsifiable. In other words, if something cannot be disproved, then, in effect, it cannot be challenged and becomes dogma, not science. Is there anything in science or medicine that is not falsifiable? Um, yeah, so I think that is an important claim. I mean, there's, there's arguments in the philosophy of science around that. But as a, as a, as a general rule, it, it makes a lot of sense, and it was very clever of uh, Popper to, to think of that. Um, you can make all sorts of fancy claims and, and you can say that um, 
you know, you're using the magic power of such and such to to heal people. I can't unless I can prove that you're not. There's no point making the claim. Um, yeah. It's you know, it doesn't it, it doesn't really stand up. So yeah, it has to be has to be testable. Yeah. Uh, so to be falsifiable is to be testable. Yeah. Um, and uh, other than that, you're just really making stuff up, and and there's nothing to stop you from making up whatever you want if it's yeah. not testable. Yeah. Uh, now it may be true, but uh, you yeah. know, unless you can unless you can prove it in a scientific manner, yeah. Um, it's not helpful. Yeah, so you can't just say stuff and then run away from it and run away from uh, from scrutiny. You've got to be able to say st stuff and be subject to scrutiny is what you're saying there. And that's what strengthens things. Yeah, that's what strengthens, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution and the, the, uh, uh, the weight of an electron and all these amazing sort of uh, uh, scientific things that have stood the test of time is that they've been challenged. And each time they've been challenged and attempts have been made to falsify them, they have failed. Yeah. And so this strengthens the, yeah. tr the, the likelihood that that theory is true. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so this nicely moves on to my next question because if we're testing stuff, we, we can test it by replicating a study. So somebody might have done a study and we replicate that and see if we get the same results as they got. And in fact, um, you uh, highlighted a uh, article in the journal Nature 2012 in which an attempt by researchers to replicate 53 landmark papers in the field of preclinical cancer research Despite multiple attempts, they found only six out of the 53 study, study findings could be replicated. Why do you think they could only replicate so few of these papers findings? That's an astounding number. It's because there's a lot of bias in research. Sure. A lot of scientists who do research, and, and probably worst of all, non-scientists who do research, don't understand their own biases and they do tend to make small decisions during the design and the conduct of a study which add up yeah. to um, producing the result that they always expected to produce. And you're looking through your results and it's a bit of a mix and you're thinking, well, there's two ways of looking at this and if I look at it this way, it makes my theory true and if I look at it that way, that makes my theory false. Mm. So therefore, I'll look at it the former way because that must be true because I know my theory is true. So it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so it, it, research is very biased and there's a lot of evidence that um, people do uh, massage data um, and, and work very hard to make their findings statistically significant, for example. Um, and uh, and a lot of studies have shown this to be the case. That doesn't mean that science is wrong or science is not a good method. It means that people aren't doing it very well. Sure, yeah. So don't blame the the messenger. Have a look at what's the, the process and the design of the study. Yeah, don't blame the scientific method, but certainly be critical when you see outlandish findings. Yeah. You know, and years ago there was the scientists that claimed they uh, uh, found the solution to cold fusion, which oh, was yeah. going to solve the Earth's power problems. Problems. Yeah. I mean, that's an outlandish claim, and it needed to be tested and it needed to be repeated. Yeah. Um, and it ended up just uh, hogwash, and they didn't really tested them twice themselves, they just saw some fluke result and then jumped to the conclusion that they had found the answer when in fact they hadn't. Sure. Um, it was interesting in that study that I quoted, they went back to the authors of the original studies, hmm. asking them, saying, well, what have we done wrong? And we've replicated your study exactly and we can't find the amazing result that you found. And one of the original researchers said, well, I'm not surprised, I had to do it six times to get that result. <laughs> so. It, right. It, and he didn't understand the problem with that. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> right. He didn't believe the five studies he did that showed he was wrong. Yeah. He only believed the one study he did that showed it was right. Right, a small little insuance of detail. Yeah. 
Now, yeah. you've been uh, very honest in your book and very candid and shown great humility. Uh, you've, you've applauded the work of uh, skeptical societies like the Friends of Medicine. They were started initially by donation from the Australian Skeptic Society, by the way. But uh, they've had a go at homeopathy, chiropractic subluxation theory, kinesiology. But you also say that they have one flaw that they rarely, if ever, turn their attention towards mainstream medicine. Why do you think they haven't? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm, I've been to many skeptic society meetings and I get their magazine and I love it. Um, they're very scientific, these guys, and they're very smart. However, um, it's, it's a disconnect, I think. It's cognitive dissonance. I don't know what it is. But I don't think that they're very comfortable with criticizing mainstream medicine because their argument constantly is, well, you know, this area of alternative medicine, you know, homeopathy or whatever, doesn't work because it doesn't stand up to scientific tests and it doesn't obey the tenets of science that, that traditional medicine is based on. Mm. When, when you ask them to start saying, well, neither, neither does traditional medicine, and a lot of that is woolly and it's not based on proper tenets of science and uh, it's not done properly, it, it becomes difficult because then they're kind of like, well, well then who are we championing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, championing. It's, There's no one um, <laughs> I, I think it becomes a little bit woolly. You've got a, a profession that is based in science, fine. Mm. Okay, that's, that's good. We support that. Yeah. Um, You've got a practice that's not based in science, we're critical of it. That's easy to understand. Yeah. And I think, you know, to be fair, it's kind of like the problem isn't with medicine itself. The problem is with a lot of the practitioners of medicine. <laughs> um, and, and so how to unpick that is, is, a, is a little bit tricky. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Now, you make a confession uh, in the book. You say, I perform surgery that doesn't work. I state this in case any readers were thinking that I considered myself blameless in all of this. Now, with all due respect to you, Ian, you're at the top of the tree in terms of the medical world. You're a specialist, a researcher, years of experience, and so on. While I fully respect your uh, um, comment and your uh, confession and applaud what you've done by writing this book, and I agree with that we need to come clean in all professions, um, while I'd love to see more research in my world, I can't see this happening in manual therapy because we've got a lot more to lose given where we are in the pond and uh, our access to research funding. What do you think of that? Well... You've still got to go where the truth is. Yeah. We can't assume that something is effective because we want it to be effective. Sure. Um, that's that's not enough, and that's what a lot of practitioners do. It's not it's it's, it's anybody. Yeah. We 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 want it to be effective, and therefore we believe it's effective. We look for evidence that it's effective. We disregard evidence that it's not effective. That's not good enough. And I think really you've just got to be completely objective and just search for the truth and the only way to find out the truth of any matter is through rigorous scientific inquiry yeah. um, and if you don't have the evidence for the procedure you're doing you need to find it you yeah. need to get it because otherwise you don't know whether you're living in a in, in a dream or not yeah well I guess the other I mean obviously these questions are, I'm playing yeah, people don't want to... but uh, yeah, people... sorry go ahead but people don't want to do it. I mean, surgeons don't want to do research into surgery. They just want yeah. to do the surgery. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's easier. Yeah. Well, why ask questions? Yeah. Um, but if you really want to know if it's effective, that's what you have to do. Yeah, and, and, and what I was going to say is that I am obviously playing devil's advocate asking you these questions, but one of the reasons why you should find out the truth and test what we do is not because we might then be left with nothing to do, but we'll actually find better things to do. Exactly. Yeah, and it's what I don't understand surgeons' criticisms and surgeons' worry. There's a lot of effective operations out there to do. Mm, yeah. You know, it's not as if we're not busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's more stuff there to do. There's certainly lots of things one could be doing. It's just like finding out the right things and the best things to do, as you say. So um, here's a good one. I love this statement. Uh, Expert opinion is the lowest level of evidence in science. 
So can we say that expert opinion is an oxymoron, a bit like military intelligence? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's an oxymoron, but certainly um, there, there, it, that needed to be said. I mean, it's true. I mean, just somebody's opinion is based on their own observations is the lowest level of scientific evidence. Um, but legally, that's what we rely on. And it just always amazes me how the legal system is so unscientific. Mm. Um, it depends on one person's word against another, mm. the authority and the expertness of those two people, yes. um, and then it, it, it sort of weighs them up with, with complete disregard to what the actual scientific evidence is of what these two opposing experts are saying yes. and and then it's well we've got an expert saying one thing we've got another expert saying the opposite so therefore the truth must be somewhere you know immediately in between and that's yes. of course rubbish um, Richard Dawkins said that just because there are two opposing views it doesn't mean that the truth lies exactly mm. in between yeah no that's true now, okay, well, I guess going on from that, when you're looking at expert opinion, there's a lot of studies like a Delphi study where you get sent a questionnaire to because you're an expert in something or perceived as one anyway, and they ask you about a topic such as a drug or a surgical procedure, manual therapy even, and they ask you questions about that and they form some opinions from that study. Does that... Does that mean that those sort of studies are not really useful or would they be useful for something else? I think they're more useful than an individual's expert opinion. Mm. I think if you get enough uh, true experts on a topic, you, you will get a consensus and if it is an area where there isn't any other high-level evidence, yeah. um, then probably better than asking a single expert. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's that's a good point. Yeah, you're asking lots of people and getting uh, who are presumably experts and getting a consensus, which is better than you know two people in a legal uh, setting, I guess, like we said before. Yeah, but even then, what you're going to get is you're going to get an opinion in the end that people will be comfortable with because that's what most people agree with, but it, it, it's still not a high level of evidence. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, this is a nice juicy bit here. We've got um, conditions like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, tension, headaches, and restless leg syndrome. And they all used to be called functional somatic syndromes, perhaps, in the past. And they're now called uh, central sensitivity syndromes. Or So central sensitivity means that the nervous system, of course, is more sensitive, and therefore patients with these conditions might complain of things like allodynia or hyperalgesia. All good so far, Ian? Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm not, you're not sure what's coming next. Um, okay. And then, so you're saying that this explanation of these conditions is at best poorly supported and at worst simplistic and unproven. So what you're saying is that the explanations are such as, um, is, is this what you're saying? That things like wind up or lowered pain thresholds, expanding receptor fields, which is the type of thing that uh, I'm sure you're aware of Butler and Mosley and the Explain Pain group are saying, yeah. are, are simply unproven? Or, or what do you feel about that, uh, that explanation? They don't tell you the cause. I mean, all of these conditions are basically saying that the patient suffers from a condition where they hurt a lot. Yeah. So if they hurt a lot because the receptors are upregulated or downregulated or they're centrally sensitized or whatever, that, that may be the process by which they hurt a lot, but it doesn't tell us the cause. It doesn't tell us the pathological causation. It's, it's like a lot of things that shows us associations and I do get a little bit frustrated with things like functional MRIs because everybody says well we've got functional MRIs now so we've solved everything. So they show that when somebody has a certain condition or they, uh, they whatever it is they have that a certain part of their brain will light up. Yeah. Um, well that doesn't tell me that that the brain lighting up caused the condition, that could be the reaction to the condition or it could be something that goes hand in hand with that condition and it doesn't really get us very close to a cure or a cause. 
uh, it, again, it's one of these things where we just jump to conclusions about causation. Yes. Um, why is it that these people who have, say, fibromyalgia or central sensitization syndrome um, often have the same uh, psychosocial makeup uh, than, than, than each other, than, than people who don't? Um, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, why is it that people who are treated under a compensation system where there is um, adversarial, uh, an adversarial process, they're more likely to feel pain, they're more likely to be depressed? Um, that doesn't make sense. It can't be something in their biological makeup yeah. um, that's caused that. It's more to do with psychosocial things. And more and more, it's the psychosocial factors that that have been shown to be associated with uh, these sort of vague conditions, particularly conditions um, characterised by pain. Sure. So, like, let's say that you know you get to see a patient who's in this category, and do you use things like the Butler Mosley model, and uh, where you try to use different language to explain their pain? That maybe just because they're feeling pain, it doesn't mean there's been damage. You reduce the the catastrophizing yeah. the catastrophizing of their pain, uh, and and really explain to them where their pain, uh, how they're feeling pain, rather than actually tell them that we've got to do an operation for you? Is, is, that, is that something you do or what do you do with those patients that are either centrally or peripheral? Yeah, that is, what I, that is what I do. It's very difficult um, to do that. I don't think I'm necessarily very good at it, but I do try reassurance. Yeah. I try to be calming because often these patients are fearful um, that there is a, a serious process going on and I try to explain them no, they've just got a sore back. Yeah. Um, it's not anything else. It's not going to put them in a wheelchair. It's yeah. not going to spread throughout their body. Uh, they've just got back pain. Yeah. And their perception of the severity of that back pain can be altered significantly by how they are feeling about other things, yeah. um, stresses they have in their life, uh, things like that. And, you know, they need to not focus too much on the pain because often these people are just so focused on their symptoms, they're on the lookout for any mm. kind of symptom that may just pass us by, but to them yes. becomes a sign of more damage and more harm. So, But it's very difficult to reverse that in a 15-minute consultation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these people are um, coming no, to see you for an operation, aren't they? I mean, they've come to see you, have waited all this time, yeah. and you tell them, actually, no, an operation isn't going to help you, but let's talk about where your pain might be coming from. How does that go? Yeah, I actually don't have any problems with um, explaining to people that the operation is not effective. And that's an important point because many of my colleagues say, well, they come expecting an operation, it's too difficult to tell them the operation doesn't work, it's easier just to do the operation. I completely disagree with that because I've done this many, many times. And if you say to a patient, the evidence tells us that if I operate on you, you will be no better off than if I don't operate on you and it'll cost you a lot and it'll expose you to harms, yes. no person's going to do that operation. Yeah, yeah. It's not that difficult to sell that. What's difficult is the next step, because then they're saying, well, then do I just have to live with it? You know, mm -hmm. What else do I do? Yeah. And that becomes difficult. That's not a reason to do an ineffective operation. Yeah. Just because you don't have an alternative, and this is another thing I approach in the book, there's yeah. this tendency for doctors to do something. They'll do whatever it is they can mm. that they think will help. And if we don't have any alternatives, well, then what the hell? We'll do an operation and maybe that'll work. Yeah. Um, that's not good enough. Yeah. Um, but it is difficult. And I, I would love to refer these patients to somebody else who would explain to them mm. about their pain and about their pain behavior and their perception of pain yeah. in order to make them understand because I think that's a long process. But I don't know who to send them to to do that because if I send them to, you'd think you'd send them to a pain specialist because they've got pain. Yeah. But some of the pain specialists that I refer to merely put them on ever-increasing doses of opioids, yeah. put in spinal cord stimulators, yeah. um, all sorts of things that are counterproductive, yeah. harmful, yeah. costly, best probably ineffective. Yeah. Yeah, that's disappointing, isn't they it? They fall for the same trap. They feel like they have to do something, so yeah. they just keep doing things. 
Yeah. As long as the patient keeps coming back, they'll keep doing things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's. Uh, we're coming to sort of the last uh, ten minutes or so, Ian. I really appreciate your time, but so we'll just go with some quicker answers to these ones, uh, which talk about actual. Um, uh, real examples of, of surgery and this one here is a, is a lovely one why are midwives better than obstetricians tell us about the study that advocates uh, using a midwife instead of an obstetrician in uncomplicated births um, well there's been many studies in, in, in that regard um, but again there is this perception that um, well you know just to be safe we'd better have our birth done in a hospital uh, by an obstetrician because you know you, you never know. But there is evidence, like with a lot of specialties, that you are more likely to be overtreated. You are more likely to have a cesarean section, which is, you know, perhaps n not indicated or of, of questionable indications. Uh, you're more likely to have, you know, fetal monitoring. Uh, and uh, and other things and, and fetal monitoring you think how could that be a bad thing I mean mm. if they're monitoring how the baby is while um, in labor surely that's a good thing but it, it isn't and all it leads to is increased intervention uh, mm. and a higher seizure rate doesn't lead to healthier babies or, or babies that are less likely to die there's all these things that are so paradoxical you yeah. know over treatment is rife yeah. and a lot of people in the community don't understand that Doctors overtreat, and that can be harmful. Sure, no, that's 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 a good point, and, and and one that follows the theme of many of these other examples. So obviously, one that's uh, close to your heart and uh, your area. Knee arthroscopy doesn't work for patients who have mild arthritis or undisplaced meniscal tear. When it, whatever your X-rays look like, regardless of where your, the arthritis is, regardless of how bad your pain is, and regardless if your MRI shows the meniscus to be torn. So why are they still carried out? Um, tradition, yeah, perceived perceived effectiveness, yeah. Um, even though I see patients who have had arthroscopies and they're no better at all, um, yep. I think uh, a lot of surgeons, you know, you get them back at some time later. You're feeling better? No, not really. Well, I'll come back in a few more months. Sometimes it takes a while to work. Uh, you're feeling better now? No, I'll come back in a few more months. You're feeling better now? I think so. Okay, it worked. <laughs> you know, this is not very good evidence yeah. for arthroscopy. Um, but uh, why is it still being done? I think that it's being done because the surgeons who do it believe that it's effective yeah. and they have little alternative and they have to do something and the patient wants to be treated and they want to be nice to them. Sure. Um, having said that, the rates of knee arthroscopy are falling dramatically in Australia. Sure. So I think that there has been some... Um, uh, you know the, the evidence has been heard. Yeah, are you t are you responsible for that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I'm single-handedly responsible for it, but I've certainly been pushing for it. Right. Okay. Fair enough. So uh, when it comes to research, I like the way that you say that people are looking at the wrong things when it uh, comes to deciding whether something should work or it should not, a surgical procedure. Tell us about the example of an inferior vena cava filter. Uh, you, you mentioned that in the book. and It was really interesting looking at death rates. Yeah. Um, so this is a, a net that is put into the main vein that comes up from your legs to your heart. Yeah. Um, and if you have some clots in the legs, you don't want them to go to your lung. Yeah. So you put this net in and it'll catch them. I mean, again, cut and dried, very clear. How could that ever be wrong? Yeah. You know, um, And yet you're not taking into account the complications that occur from inserting them. What does it do with the clot? Surely the clot ends up just going through the net anyway, otherwise it would completely block the vein mm. from your legs. You know, it doesn't, certainly make much sense once you actually start to think about it. And it's like a lot of things in surgery. On a first pass, on, on a superficial sort of reading, uh, you go, yeah, that kind of makes sense, let's do it. When you think about it, it probably doesn't work. And when you look at it, you can say, yeah, um, it's catched the clot. You know, we can see we can do venogram studies and show that the clot didn't get past the net. Therefore, this is a good thing. But when you do trials and you say, well, are you more likely to die from a clot to the lung if you have this compared to if you don't have this, yep. the evidence isn't there. 
No. So do, they don't go and, like, let's say it catches the clot. Do they, they don't go and say the answer to your uh, uh, inquiry about this. They don't go and check what's in the cage every day and go, oh, look what we've caught today. We'll get that out. It, that doesn't make sense, does it, if you didn't? Where would the clot go, as you said? I know. It just sits there. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how they work. I don't think they work. Right. Uh, but, it, again, it's you're looking at the wrong thing. So many studies are plagued by looking at weird sort of surrogate outcomes or measuring the to change on an x-ray or uh, measuring a blood test instead of finding out if the patient got better or not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, these ones are actually examples that relate to many of our listeners tonight. And um, these things like uh, acromioplasty for impingement syndrome doesn't work, non-operative treatment of Achilles tendon rupture with full weight bearing in a boot with a raised heel results in similar functional outcomes to those of surgical intervention. Actually, no surgical outcomes are worse than non-operative. Are, there are more complications with surgery. Perhaps what's even more interesting, though, Ian, is that patients don't accept that non-operative treatment is a reasonable option, that they want you to do something. Uh, well, in some cases, yeah. It depends on how you explain it. Um, but there is a perception, not necessarily amongst the patients, but just... In general, in the community, if a surgeon treats something non-operatively, they're often seen as um, denying them treatment. Whereas if a surgeon operates on someone, um, they're often seen as, well, you know, the hero, at least they gave it a go. Um, and, and if you have a bad result, if somebody dies or has a bad complication from non-operative treatment, the legal view on that, the, the view of a jury, for example, would be, well, he didn't even try. You know, he didn't even do anything for the patient. Yeah. Um, he just sat there. He, he didn't do any operations on them. Yeah. Um, no wonder they had a bad result. And if you had a bad result from doing an operation, then the perception is, well, at least he tried. You know. Um, and you can't, you know, you can't win when you you're professing non-operative treatment in the field of surgery. There's so many things stacked against you. Yes, yes. Now this one here, radical mastectomy, is one of those surgeries that you, uh, I think, called uh, should be on the surgical scrap heap. Uh, again, this surgery makes sense on paper. Cancer's found in the breast. You want to eliminate the cancer and prevent it from returning, right? So the breast is not essential for life. So why don't we just remove it? Wouldn't that make sense? Uh, yeah, again, something that just sounds good. Um, and this is what drove mastectomy in the heyday of surgery, you know, 100 years ago, is that surgeons would buy with each other for the most radical mastectomy they could think of. And sort of radical mastectomies were so radical that they would remove all the muscles off the chest wall mm. and all of the lymph flow from the arm, and you'd end up with these swollen, useless arms, mm. uh, a skeletal chest, uh, you know, horrible disfigurement, um, all in the name of getting bigger and bigger margins, yeah. when in fact it probably doesn't really matter a whole lot what your margins are. Yeah. Um, it's an argument on one end of the spectrum. That, that breast cancer is a systemic disease, yeah. um, that surgery really only affects the re the local recurrence rate, not the chance that you will die or not. So when they compared uh, 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 mastectomy to a lumpectomy, which yeah. is obviously a much smaller yeah. procedure and is breast preserving, yeah. um, with, with radiotherapy they found very similar results. And now it's gotten to the stage where if you have a very bad tumour, so you've got a, a very severe breast cancer which has spread and it's, and it's quite a nasty one, yeah. whether you remove it or not probably makes no difference to the mortality for that patient. And at the other end of the spectrum, when you have a very mild cancer, uh, it's a very low-grade cancer, there is a, a reasonable argument that it really doesn't matter if you remove it or not, and if you do remove it, it probably doesn't matter how good your margins are. Yeah, you said so it. The whole idea, the simplistic mentality that you've just got to get it out and then everything will be fine, it's just not as simple. It's like unblocking coronary arteries. It just sounds good. If, if, I, if you've got a narrowing there and I unblock it, then you will be better. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily play out like that. It's a lot more complicated than that. 
Yeah, well, that actually that did come up recently. The um, statins um, research that came out, I think, BMJ Online a couple of weeks ago, saying that statins don't work, uh, and that does it. That's another one that should make sense. Hey, if we unblock this artery, surely you get more blood flow through it and no blockage, but it doesn't. Um, so yeah, and another one here with the with the, the mastectomy is that astounded me. I literally had to read that several times to make sure I read it correctly, that one millimeter margin when you're doing, uh, when you're removing a tumor is no better than a five millimeter margin in terms of survival rate. Yeah, it really just affects the local recurrence in the breast. Yeah, yeah. Um, the survival is dictated by so many other things, and yet nobody says this, and people still play on this sort of, you know the hero surgeon, and 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 if you do survive breast cancer, it's all because of the surgeon, <laughs> and <laughs> it's probably not really the case. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and actually, that that research has uh, came out a couple of weeks ago in the BMJ that found that 92% of people with high cholesterol lived longer. High cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. New research found from uh, University of Ireland. And a review of the research involving 70,000 people found there was no link between what has traditionally been considered bad cholesterol and the premature deaths of over 60-year-olds from cardiovascular disease. Um, is that going to be the last word on statins? or are we just going Because there's a lot of people on statins. Yeah, statins are weird because I think they have other effects. Mm. They can they can have benefits that are not directly due to their cholesterol-lowering effects. Mm. And they may have an anti-inflammatory effect. So it becomes very complicated when you're looking at statins. But the whole cholesterol theory is, again, another sim simplistic view of things. Um, yes. Plaques are made of fats, or if you eat fat, you'll get plaques. It's, uh, it's really not that clear. No. Okay. So they might be working in other ways than we think they are. Maybe. We're not sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So finally, uh, you said that it uh, in the book that it might be stretching a bit far to expect that governments could educate people in critical thinking. But would you agree that even the most critical of thinkers can be vulnerable to emotive decisions? In other words, what feels good, sounds right, can outweigh logic and critical thinking. If, for example, you look at any advert on TV right now, it relies on emotion. You look at whitening toothpaste. By the very name, it tells you already you've got your teeth are whitening as we watch the, the, the advert, the, the six-pack abs yeah. machine. Uh, it's going to be an uphill battle to change our minds and our thinking, isn't it? Yeah, but when you think about it, we're a lot more scientific than we used to be. I mean, we don't fall for snake oil salesmen, and mm. we're a lot more sceptical people make suggestions now. Um, so I think we're better than we used to be, and I think that we'll be better in the future. But um, there's still a lot of gullibility out there. And, um, yeah, you look at advertising, they're really playing us for chumps. You know, I love these ads that just say, um, based on, uh, you know, uh, has been subjected to clinical trials. Yeah. Um, what did those clinical trials show? Did they show that it didn't work? I mean, it's just, you've just got to mention the word clinical trials or scientifically proven. Mm. And you go, well, what was the science? And, yeah. You know, so people are misusing uh, uh, science, misusing the name of science a little bit. Sure. Uh, I, I understand. It's going to be a battle between uh, the, you know, the marketers in that case when, say, you know, what, what they think is happening and people who are interested in science. But um, anyway, let's uh, let's end here, Ian. You've given us uh, a lot of uh, your time and uh, uh, wisdom about this subject, which is really important for us as uh, manual therapists and uh, involved with helping patients. And I'd like to really thank you so much for your time and recommend your book to our listeners. Uh, if you want to get a copy of the book, uh, Surgery, Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo, you can visit booktopia.com.au. Uh, it's 1995 on that uh, site and it's published by New South Publishing. Ian, thank you so much for your time and uh, have a good evening. Thanks very much for having me. That's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Professor Ian Harris, author of the book, Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo.
If you'd like to get access to other great interviews with world experts in the area of dry needling and myofascial pain, please log into your account at members.cpdhealthcourses.com forward slash login. If you're not a member, I encourage you to join the CPD Health Courses membership site, which gives you access to hundreds of hours of content, including over 60 hours of dry needling video training, business coaching advice, useful documents like dry needling consent forms, and staff training scripts, plus a lot more relevant content that's available as online programs to listen to at any time or downloadable PDFs. In addition to these resources, I'm available on the membership site to answer any questions you might have about clinical practice and running your own healthcare business. If you'd like to join the membership site, please visit cpdhc forward slash video training. Membership is either monthly or annual. My advice is to get the annual membership price, which gives you a great discount on the monthly subscription. So visit cpdhc forward slash video training to find out more. Thank you. CPD Health Courses. Dry needling training for health professionals. Online theory plus face-to-face practical. Start your training today at cpdhealthcourses.com.